This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When the Westminster Divines completed the Confession of Faith in 1647, there was no chapter dedicated to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. According to some modern critics of the Confession, that absence betrays a troubling disinterest in the third person of the Holy Trinity. Others have argued that the divines abandoned Calvin's strong emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. They argue that, after Calvin, Reformed theology became rationalist, and that Reformed theology needs to be revised to overcome those tendencies. In 1903, at least one American Presbyterian body added a chapter to the Westminster Confession on the Holy Spirit. Others, however, have argued the opposite case, that the Reformed Confessions have a strong doctrine of the person and work of the Spirit, and that such revisions are unnecessary. These debates have been driven by developments in 19th century theology and modern criticisms of classic Reformed theology. John Fesco is academic dean and professor of historical and systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's just published a new book on this very topic, The Spirit of the Age, the 19th century debate over the Holy Spirit and the Westminster Confession. This, with other faculty titles, is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be back with you. When Reformed theology is compared to the prevailing evangelical theology piety and practice, at least since the 19th century, it might seem that there is in Reformed theology a general downplaying of the person and work of the Spirit. So, are we, Reformed confessionalists, afraid of the Holy Spirit? No, I don't think so, not in the least. But what that question, I think, needs to find is why are so many people talking about the Holy Spirit, especially, say, in the 20th century, or now as we find ourselves, obviously, in the 21st century? Why the question and why the suspicion against traditional Reformed theology that it's somehow deficient? That, I think, in and of itself is an important question. B.B. Warfield called Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the Institutes, Book 3 is on the application of redemption by the Holy Spirit, and Book 4 on the church, largely, where the Holy Spirit ordinarily operates to bring his people to Christ. Did the 17th century Reformed, and particularly the Westminster Divines, abandon his emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit? No, not in the least. And what's interesting is that I think that while so many people and perhaps those who think that the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, is a little bit deficient on the Holy Spirit because they see the table of contents, don't see the chapter on the Holy Spirit. And they also know of Warfield's assessment of Calvin, that he's a theologian of the Holy Spirit, that, well, you know, gee whiz, maybe we do have a problem. But yet Warfield, in defense of the Westminster Confession of Faith, right around the time of when theologians and the American mainline denomination was considering revising the confession, said that the confession has not just one chapter on the Holy Spirit, but rather it has many. And in fact, if you start with the chapter on effectual calling all the way through chapter 19, so chapters 10 through 19, you could say that it actually has nine chapters on the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is interwoven all throughout the confession's treatment of the application of redemption. And then in addition to that, when you count all of the statements 
on the Holy Spirit throughout the Westminster Confession of Faith, it actually amounts to something like, I think it's nearly 40 or more references to the person and work of the Spirit throughout. So the Spirit is everywhere there. It's just a question of looking into the document to see all of the different places and ways in which the Confession discusses the work of the Spirit. We're talking to John Fesco. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're discussing his new book, The Spirit of the Age, regarding the Holy Spirit in Reformed theology, and particularly what happened to the discussion of the person and work of the Spirit in the 19th century. So, John, this really comes down to how people evaluate the confession. So, you're saying that if, for example, someone does as I'm doing now, pulls up the Christian Creeds and Reformed Confessions app on their phone and just sort of pages through all of the chapters, Mm -hmm. you see 33 chapters and, Mm -hmm. and none of them is labeled on the Holy Spirit. And you're saying that's not a very good test. No, not at all. I think, you know, on the one hand, how many of us would evaluate, say, a book based upon the table of contents? Now, maybe we do that, say, for example, when you're perusing a book on Amazon and you look to see the table of contents and you use that to sway your mind as to which way you want to go, whether you should buy a book or not. But at the same time, ultimately, we should really evaluate a document or a book by its contents and what it actually says. I think a second observation regarding this is that how exactly did confessions and creeds function in the 16th and 17th century. And more often than not, though not exclusively, but more often than not, the focus or the main thrust of attention was given to areas of disagreement, not so much necessarily areas of agreement, although there are plenty of things that are said by way of agreement, so that because the Holy Spirit really wasn't a subject of disagreement with the broader Roman Catholic Church, and we could say in many respects that the Reformation shares a common Catholic with a small c, a common universal doctrine, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. I think that's one of the explanations as to why you don't find a whole lot of overt emphasis, say, in the uh, structure, per se, of the Westminster Confession of Faith in comparison with Roman Catholic views. How did this book come about? How did you come to write this? Were you just sort of working through the confession and realized there was this omission or at least apparent alleged omission? What brought it to your attention? Yeah, I think that what happened initially is that I was asked to give a uh, faculty conference lecture two Januaries ago when we were treating the topic of the Holy Spirit. And I think the basic title of my lecture was The Holy Spirit Absent or Present from the Reformed Confessions. And so I decided, you know, as a Presbyterian to focus on the Westminster Standards, but not to the exclusion of the three forms, because obviously the Holy Spirit gets treated quite well in the three forms of unity. But my attention, I wanted to focus primarily on these 19th century revisions, which actually occurred in 1903. And as I was reading about them, I started really kind of uncovering and kind of unraveling or peeling back the layers of the onion to realize that my impression from afar was that, okay, they didn't see the Holy Spirit. They wanted to emphasize the Holy Spirit. And maybe a shallow analysis would have said, okay, maybe there's some ground there for this. But the more and more you look into the reasons behind why people wanted to revise it, all of a sudden you realize there's a huge amount of doctrinal presuppositions and assumptions that drove the desire for revision. And all of a sudden, sudden, I was kind of enthralled and kind of fascinated with all of this. And I thought, 
I've never seen anybody really write on this and really kind of uncover this, because especially from our vantage point, look at all of the either books on the Holy Spirit or systematic theologies that now have chapters on the Holy Spirit. When you compare them, say, with the earlier books of, say, uh, Hodge or Burkhoff, they don't have chapters on the Holy Spirit. So again, the surface impression is, is, oh, wow, we've got a deficient treatment of the Spirit. But then when you look and you start peeling back the layers of the onion, you realize, no, there are some very different theological assumptions at work here. And uh, long story short, you have what we can call the liberal mindset that in the name of Christ claimed that they wanted to re-emphasize the doctrine of the Spirit. But I really believe that it's the traditional Reformed confessions, and in this particular case, it's the subject of the book, the Westminster Standards, that truly in substance hold up the teaching of Christ and the teaching of Scripture as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. So really, there was, if I'm hearing you correctly, a kind of paradigm shift, Mm -hmm. and the proposed revisions that were finally adopted by the mainline Presbyterian Church in 1903 were not just the result of seeing an absence, something that had been overlooked earlier, Mm -hmm. and remedying that. It was Mm -hmm. actually the fruit of a shift in the way of thinking about Reformed theology and thinking about, in some ways, how history works. Absolutely. I think in this respect, the more and more I've researched this, I'm more and more convicted that so many of our present-day discussions and the way that we talk about doctrine, even about Reformed theology, has been significantly shaped by the 19th century. It's kind of like, you know, the old illustration you hear, you know, why do you chop the ends off of the ham in order to cook it? Well, that's the way my mom did it. Well, then you ask your mom and she says, well, that's the way grandma did it. Well, why is it that grandma did it that way? Well, because the ham wouldn't fit in the pan, you know, so that when you dig back, you begin to find out why are we doing things this way? Why are we talking about doctrine this way? And obviously, not every answer comes from the 19th century, but many, many theological reasons and explanations and philosophical ideas have significantly impacted the 20th century and the 21st century, and I think we don't even realize it. So you agree with one of my favorite theologians, right? Curly Howard. Right? I'm a victim of circumstance. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we are, in some ways, in the providence of God, the product of history. Yes. But we're not always aware of how much we're shaped by decisions that were made and actions that were taken Mm -hmm. a long time before. Uh, we were born. Right. We tend to operate basically on what we know from our experience, mm-hmm. particularly as Americans, mm-hmm. and not always very aware of how history has shaped us. I think you're absolutely right on that. You know, the Bible verse that comes to mind is Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I think in that respect, it's a lot of work, I think, but nevertheless valuable work to ask questions as to why do I think this way? Why am I using this term? Where did this term come from? You know, is this really biblical or is this just something that I have assumed is biblical? And I think so much of this kind of mindset really gets unpacked here as you look into this 19th century debate. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to John Fesco about his new book, The Spirit of the Age. That's an interesting title, and I suspect it's a loaded phrase. Oh, yeah. Well, unpack it for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. I think that what a lot of folks don't realize is if they make the superficial assessment, well, they added a chapter on the Holy Spirit in 1903 
I don't see a chapter on the Holy Spirit before that. Therefore, it must have been that they just saw there was a deficiency and that's it. And that's, you know, not really at all the case. What it is is that you had 19th century theologians who were significantly influenced by Immanuel Kant and the idea or what's called German idealism, which has this idea or this notion that the way that you develop a system of thought is that you have one principle and that from this one principle, you deduce an entire system of thought. And you can see this. Charles Briggs was one of the chief people behind trying to revise the Westminster Standards or the Westminster Confession of Faith in particular. And he says it multiple times that he loves the work of Isaac Dorner, 19th century German theologian. And, you know, you see this in his colleague, Philip Schaff, writes the foreword to Emanuel Gerhardt's Institutes of Christian Theology. And you also have another one of their 19th century peers, a man by the name of Henry Boynton Smith, who also also talks about the chief principle or the one doctrine from which you deduce your entire system of theology is the doctrine of Christ. So that Briggs and Schaff believe that the chief doctrine from which you deduce all doctrine is from Christology. So in kind of interesting turn, if you will, Bart is not the one who originates with Christocentrism. It's really a 19th century phenomenon that comes about from this idea of German idealism. So that's the first big piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle is that Charles Briggs despised 17th century theology. He said it was scholastic, it was backwards, that it sought first to create its system, and once it had created its system, then it went around hunting for proof texts to substantiate the system. Now, there's a kernel of truth in his assessment in that, yes, it's a fact. The Westminster Divines first wrote the confession, and then after they submitted it, Parliament asked, would you please attach proof texts to this? It's not because they first deduced their system and then looked for scriptural support. I think it was a decided tactic on their part in that while everybody agreed on the doctrine, they didn't all necessarily agree on the exegetical route to get to that doctrine. And so they wanted to leave the scriptures off to the side as a number of confessions of the period do, not because it was unscriptural, but just because they thought, well, let's just summarize what we believe. And we do believe in the chief and supreme authority of scripture. So that tiny kernel of truth, he weaves it into this false narrative that it's basically just unbiblical, speculative type of theology. And then the third idea that comes into play here is a medieval mystic by the name of Joachim Fiore. And Joachim in the uh, Middle Ages in the 13th century came up with this idea that all of history was divided up into three phases, the phase of the Father, the phase of the Son, and then finally the phase of the Spirit, or might we say the age of the Spirit, which is kind of where the book title comes from. And he believed that once the phase or the age of the sun ended, that there would be this new third and final period of redemptive history that was marked exclusively by the Spirit. And here's an important point to note, the Spirit divorced from Christ and divorced from the gospel, that this new type of evangel, this new knowledge would kind of diffuse its way by work of the Spirit through the creation. And that only these people in the know, we could call them maybe super Gnostics, would know these would be the new theological elite. Now, why on earth would we go back to the Middle Ages to come up with this idea? Well, because you had theologians and philosophers who kind of picked up on this idea, most notably Georg Hegel. 
Hegel becomes really kind of entranced with this idea, and he uses it to come up with his own idea of the threefold stages of history. And he applies his, you know, first you have the thesis of the kingdom of God, then you have the thesis of the kingdom of the Son, which then results in the synthesis of the kingdom of the Spirit. Well, you get this Hegelian view of history, which is informed by this medieval mystic that gets picked up by Schaff and Briggs, and really a lot of 20th century theologians, Jürgen Moltmann, you could even say to a certain extent Karl Barth, Harvey Cox, who's at Harvard, in a book that he's recently published within the last couple of years, so that the age of the Spirit is this idea that we would enter into a new stage of history that would shed propositional theology, that would shed creeds and confessions, which was a necessary stage of the development of the unfolding of the church's history, but ultimately antiquated, outdated. This is the mentality that informed many of the men who were seeking to revise the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. They looked at the 17th century document, thought that it was deficient, and wanted to emphasize the work of the Spirit in a new way, but one divorced from Christ. And one final thing I think we could toss in here as perhaps a cultural accelerant would be the development of Pentecostalism, you know, which you have with Edward Irving in the early 19th century or the Topeka, Kansas movement, or even the uh, so-called revivals that broke out in Los Angeles in the early 20th century. I think that many, maybe at the ground level, saw this supposed work of the Spirit, looked at the confession, looked at their own practice and thought, hey, why aren't we involved in this? And I think that that also fueled, that was some, you know, gasoline to the fire, so to speak, that also practically or popularly fed the impetus to want to address and change the confession. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free. 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. If the listener is interested in even more about the 19th century background of some of the writers that Professor Fesco was just mentioning, one of our graduates, Zachary Purvis, published his doctoral work, and the title is Theology and the University in 19th Century Germany. He's working on this group of writers known broadly as the mediating theologians. And these are the folks who are building bridges, in a sense, between Schleiermacher and more orthodox portions of the church. And they help to popularize, in some ways, Hegel Mm -hmm. and these Hegelian ideas. And just so the listener doesn't think that this is entirely abstract, if you've ever heard someone in a political debate or some other kind of discussion say that you are on the wrong side of history, right? Mm -hmm. That is a witness to the abiding power 
of what Hegel did. Absolutely. I think that's right. So you get these 19th century theologians like Charles Briggs. The illustration I use is they look at the Westminster Divines and they're playing rugby and they criticize it because it's not American football. The two games are very similar, but at the end of the day, they are different games. And so it's that Briggs and others have a very different theology, and it's very different from the Westminster Divines. Do you think it's fair to say there was a kind of arrogance that said, we are modern, enlightened people. We know how the world works. We have achieved a level of insight into whether it's scripture or theology or history or science, whatever it is. And those backward people, and I think you used Mm -hmm. that language earlier, Mm -hmm. from the 17th century, they just weren't as intelligent and enlightened as we are. And so however much we may appreciate some of what they did, it's time for us to move on. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right on that in that that's almost kind of the same phrases and ideas that you see Briggs talking about. He says the Westminster Confession had a backwards metaphysics, you know, the way of structuring reality. They had a diminished understanding of the scriptures. They had not understood the new developments that came to us through biblical theology that had been developing in the 19th century. They did not employ the latest philosophical advancements, say, for example, of Hegel. They had a backward scientific understanding, even though Bacon was, um, you know, one of their peers, they didn't employ his scientific methodology. They didn't understand the developments that had come about because of psychology. So Briggs looked down his long nose of progress and said, this is just really backwards. But one of the things that I try to point out in the book is the idea of the myth of progress, is that just because time passes doesn't mean that doctrine evolves and progresses. Sometimes it could actually devolve and get worse and farther away from Scripture than closer to it. This idea of progress is a really powerful idea. It's deeply embedded in the American way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And you know this is true, if the listener is an American, when you go overseas Mm -hmm. and you're wandering around and you think, you know, these people could do X better, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You find within yourself this desire to fix things and change things. And you realize, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm talking about myself, right, that uh, I'm an American and I wanted to write a manual right? And say, well, okay, here's a manual about Mm -hmm. how to, and of course, you can't do that. This is their country, their culture. They can do things the way they want. But we believe deeply in this country, in progress. And in some ways, that's a good thing when it comes to civil life and economic life, but maybe not so good when it comes to theology. After all, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that's revealed in God's Word and confessed in the ecumenical creeds, Mm -hmm. the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and Athanasian, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that you'd necessarily need to upgrade, right? right? We want to upgrade the operating system on our phone, but not necessarily the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I tell my students this, and I suspect it's something you also tell your students, is that one of the things that Briggs and others really were critical of the Westminster Confession of Faith is because it's supposed indebtedness to Aristotelianism. And I think that you can find traces of Aristotle there, but first of all, it's in a secondary ancillary use of it in terms of they're using it as a device to explain things, primary, secondary, causality, those types of things. And it's explanatory. It is not in any way foundational for their theology. In fact, Scripture, of course, is the ultimate foundation for their theology. But second, I say that if the Apostle Paul were to show up, I mean— you know, if he were to pop up on the scene, I think he would say, Aristotle, I know, 
who is this Kant guy? Who is Hegel? And he would probably be quite befuddled by these modern philosophers. And so in that respect, I think that Aristotle makes for a better dialogue partner when we're talking about theology than Kant or Hegel, because they are so far removed, so foreign, and have so many completely different assumptions. Whereas the Apostle Paul would have been familiar with Plato and Aristotle, given his rabbinic training, or at least likely with the broad contours of their thought. And in fact, some have even argued that there are phrases from Aristotle that pop up in Paul's letters. This is not to say that Paul is an Aristotelian, but rather it was just part of his world. And so therefore he would have been more conversant with it. And so, yeah, I just say that we would probably be surprised even with the example that you just cited about being on the wrong side of history, as to how unconsciously indebted we are to a lot of modern philosophy that we just use secondhand and don't even realize what it is that we're saying or using. And so that's why hopefully with this book, I can get people to kind of say, wait a minute, let me stop and let me evaluate what it is that we're saying and doing and thinking. In 1903, the mainline Presbyterian Church adopted mm-hmm. two new chapters, chapter 34 and 35, mm-hmm. sort of tacked it on to the confession, uh, one on the Holy Spirit, 34, and 35 on the mission of the church. Mm-hmm. Warfield opposed mm-hmm. both of these additions, and you walk through that in the book. He wasn't as adamantly opposed mm-hmm. to 34 mm-hmm. as he was to 35, mm-hmm. and yet you note that the Orthodox Presbyterians and the Presbyterian Church in America both both scuttled, mm-hmm. is the verb you use, mm-hmm. these revisions. So, first, who receives chapters 34 and 35 today mm-hmm. as part of the confession? And then we'll go from there. Up to this point, you could say that the mainline Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, has these two chapters. Up until about, I think it was, I believe, two years ago, the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, had these chapters, but they recently excised them and removed them. Now, I'm unaware of the particulars and the reasoning behind it, but as you note, the OPC, the PCA, removed them because I think in the end, there's a sense in which you could say, who's reading the confession and what purposes do they have? And in the hands of Warfield, I think they can be somewhat benign. But in the hands of liberals or, say, Briggs and others, these chapters, I think, become the precursors to the Auburn affirmation, or this is the foundation to, say, Pearl Buck in her famous book on missions and the idea that you could have a Christless Christianity and take a Christless gospel to the mission field. And this is the idea that Machen so opposed, and that's what led to the formation of the Independent Mission Society or Committee and then, you know, the Orthodox. Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and then later, obviously, in the 70s, the Presbyterian Church of America. So that, you know, read by themselves, I think especially, say, the chapter on the love of God, it undermines the doctrine of election. And then you could make a case that the chapter on the Holy Spirit, in one sense, reiterates a number of things that are in the confession already. But as I note in the book, it completely ignores what the confession does by linking Christology and pneumatology in chapter 8, that Christ and the work of the Spirit are intertwined and they can't and shouldn't be separated. And that what you have, I think, in that edition of the chapter on the Holy Spirit is really kind of an unhinging or an unhitching of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from Christology. So, you know, in the hands of liberals, it really, I think, creates some tensions and it pushes into the directions of universalism and a Christless gospel. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You list six reasons why this is still important. 
So the listener might be thinking, well, you know, this is all very interesting, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm in the PCA, I'm in the OPC or the ARP or whatever, and we don't confess those two chapters. And um, so how does this affect me? How does this touch me? And you give six reasons. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be helpful for the listener if we went through those quickly just to give the listener a reason to look at your new book, The Spirit of the Age by John Fesco, available through the bookstore and uh, online. So the first one is Reformed Orthodoxy and Exegesis. And the allegation is sometimes made that the old guys, the 17th century theologians, didn't really, as you sort of reflecting on earlier, read the Bible carefully. They wrote the confession, and then they went looking for proof texts. Mm -hmm. And um, they get accused of being sloppy with Scripture. Mm -hmm. Just briefly, is that true? And if not, why not? It's false in that when you read the works of the Reformed Orthodox authors, which are typically late 16th, 17th century Reformed theologians, say, for example, Francis Turretin and others, they are rigorously exegetical. That doesn't mean that at every single turn they're exegeting every single passage of Scripture. Oftentimes, they're in dialogue with an exegetical tradition and it's informed. Say, for example, you look at Calvin's Institutes, you might be led to the conclusion that, well, wait a minute, where's the exegesis? We've well, got to turn to his commentary for that. And so often it's the case that men like Junius, for example, Francis Junius, he had his theological works, but he also had his biblical commentaries. So it's rigorously exegetical. And one of the things that I try to showcase in the book is to show a comparative exegesis of Charles Briggs's, which I would call it lifeless exegesis of the Psalms, in comparison with 17th century exegesis of the same passages. And they're much richer, Christologically, you know, oriented and rich with typology and connection connections to the rest of Scripture. So, for anybody who thinks that the Reformed scholastics were not exegetical, I would say take a second look or take a third look and re-examine their works because they're rigorously exegetical. Isn't it just the case that, well, we have Luther's works in English, we have Calvin's works largely in English, but we don't have a lot of 17th century or even 16th century Reformed commentaries on Scripture because they remain untranslated? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The vast majority of it remains untranslated. I don't know on the post-Reformation digital library, the prdl.org, I think they have somewhere upwards of 50,000 titles up there. Now, obviously, not all of them are Reformed Orthodox works, but a good portion of them are, which means that there are tens of thousands of untranslated works, mostly in Latin, but obviously German, French, other languages. But yeah, I think that's a huge factor, that when you want to go to 16th century theology, chances are you're going to pull Calvin off the shelf. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't fully capture the breadth and the depth of other exegetical and theological works from the period. You also mentioned Reformed ecumenicity or Reformed Catholicity Mm -hmm. with a lowercase c. Mm -hmm. The Reformed were following a tradition that was established 1,500 years before them. Right. You know, when you look at Calvin's letter to Sadaletto, Cardinal Sadaletto was trying to woo Geneva back into the Roman Catholic fold. One of the points that Calvin makes, he says essentially, we're the true Catholics. He doesn't use that exact phrase. But he says, we're the true Catholics in the sense that we take the very best of the patristics and the medievals. So for Calvin, that would have been, say, Bernard de Clairvaux. It would have been Irenaeus, you know, Augustine and others. And we're the true heirs. We are not in the least sectarians. We are part of the true one Catholic church. It's you, Cardinal Sadaletto, who has departed from this true teaching of the church. And sadly, I think nowadays, Reformed, while an important word, has become a brand unto itself for many people, that there's an exclusive Reformed approach to doctrine, to everything. And if you look, say, at 
Calvin's Institutes and start just counting how many times he refers to the Church Fathers or to Augustine, or look at Turretin and how many times he frequently cites these men, patristics of the medievals, you quickly will realize that, no, they wanted to be Reformed Catholics. And indeed, many works called themselves Reformed Catholics, like uh, that was the title of Perkins' work. Yeah, exactly. I was, that's where I was going. One of the most famous works of that title is The Reformed Catholic. Mm-hmm. And Perkins' goes through and makes a case that Mm -hmm. the Reformed were the true heirs of the fathers and of the broad Mm -hmm. tradition, and that it was Rome that had departed from that. Absolutely, yeah. Hegel and Joachim are still influential, Mm -hmm. remarkably, 12th century monk and a 19th century German, still influencing us. And one way in which that would be true, for example, is the abiding influence of the Mercersburg theology. Yeah, you got uh, John Williamson Nevin, who's often held up in our circles as, oh, he's the one that reclaimed Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Whatever you think of the debate between Hodge and Nevin, you know, most people usually say that Nevin got the better of Hodge on that one. I think that one of Hodge's concerns was the Hegelian influences upon Nevin. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have to say Hodge completely lost the debate, but you certainly, when you're evaluating Nevin, should ask, how much has Hegel influenced Nevin? Because a lot of people, today want to hold him up as, you know, something to return to. And then, as I said earlier, if you pick up Pannenberg or Moltmann or Bart or Harvey Cox, these are all very influential in the broader church, these men are, and they are deeply indebted to Hegel and then by, you know, connection, even sometimes explicitly to Joachim. So how much medieval mystic do you like in your theology? Because there's a lot of it in the 20th century theologies that's so popular today. We frequently hear people say that systematic theology puts God in a box. It puts theology in a box. Mm -hmm. I've had people say and write to me repeatedly that, well, you are bound up in a system. Mm -hmm. And I'm just following, by contrast, the theology of Scripture, as it said. And so people like to juxtapose biblical theology with systematic theology. Quickly, (laughs) in 30 seconds, why is that problematic? Yeah, the assumption is is that biblical theology is more biblical, systematic theology is less. Biblical theology is closer to the text, systematic theology floats somewhere above it. And as we like to tell our students, everybody brings their theological assumptions to the text, even the so-called biblical theologians. And along those lines, you want to say, what are your unchecked assumptions? And this was Briggs's point, biblical theology is superior to systematic theology. And it's like, wait a minute, Mr. Briggs, what kind of assumptions are you bringing to the text? Well, even just to talk about biblical theology as a discipline Mm -hmm. is to start with a 19th century way of thinking and talking, right? Absolutely. So we we mustn't think that, you know, we've always talked about biblical theology, Mm -hmm. that the German scientific approach, allegedly scientific approach to biblical theology is just that. It's a 19th mm-hmm. century product. Yeah. I think Gerhardus Voss said it best. He said, biblical theology was born under the dark star of, you know, rationalism. And I think he completely avoids that rationalism in his own biblical theology, but he recognized this discipline is new, at least formally. Now, substantively, I think he tried to prove that, no, this is really embedded in classic Reformed theology in terms of looking at the scriptures as the unfolding of special revelation. Absolutely. But that whole modern conception of carving up a text or carving up the biblical text into these isolated pockets and the theology of John, the theology of Paul, the theology of the Gospels is a very modern way of looking at things and I think really brings a lot of theological, systematic theological baggage to the table. So they may claim greater fidelity to the biblical text, but in the end, it's not. 
one way in which Hegel continues to reverberate in our time and even in our circles is this idea of the central dogma. Mm -hmm. And you address this in the book. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, there was a German mediating theologian who proposed that the Lutherans have a central dogma, and that's justification, Mm -hmm. and the Reformed have a central dogma, and that is predestination. Mm -hmm. How does that way of thinking continue to influence people today in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, probably the most common that we know about it these days is the so-called Calvin versus the Calvinist thesis, where they say that Calvin's central doctrine was not predestination as it was for later theologians in the Reformed tradition. But like I say, according to Charles Parti, it's union with Christ is Calvin's central doctrine. That's one of the most common ideas. And so you and Truman in your book on reassessing Protestant scholasticism, Richard Muller, David Steinmetz, and others, completely overturned this erroneous thesis to say that, no, That's a 19th, 20th century modern way of looking at things. That's simply not the way that 16th and 17th century theologians did theology. That's historically. Theologically or exegetically, it's really popular in Pauline studies or in biblical studies, the idea that we have to find the one central teaching of the New Testament. And some people will say it's new creation. Others might say it's the kingdom of God. Others may say that it's some other kind of central teaching. The resurrection. The resurrection, exactly. It's like, and I want to challenge those folks to say, why are you looking for a center? Yeah, who told you to look for a center? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> who <laughs> Paraphrase scripture. <laughs> exactly. Who told you to look for a center? And why is it that for nearly, I don't know, 19 centuries, nobody ever looked for a center for scripture, but yet it's so popular today. And I want to say, maybe if you realize that this comes from the soil of 19th century rationalism and German idealism, you'd realize maybe I shouldn't be looking for a center. Maybe the reformers were actually genius in the sense that they knew that there were multiple points of emphasis in the scriptures, and we don't want to pick one because in picking one, we might wash out the others or lose vital teaching. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.